So we, we began a few weeks ago now uh, a new series of studies on the theme of stewardship using this parable from Luke chapter 16. And uh, in January, we talked about worship. In February, we talked about discipleship. Stewardship, along with worship and discipleship, is an upward-focused practice, both in, in the life of a church like ours and in each one of our lives individually as we relate to God. And so here at CCV, we're committed to and focused on practicing four specific upward-directed practices, or what we might call spiritual disciplines, that serve to deepen our relationship with God. Genuine worship, biblical discipleship, generous stewardship, and persistent prayer are the four practices that we're devoted to. And we believe that as we practice these four biblical priorities together, they, uh, they increase the presence and the fullness of God's spirit at work in our lives. In essence, it's as if these practices are like conduits through which the spirit of God, the presence of God's spirit flows freely into our lives and fills us with the presence of God. So uh, we began last week by looking at this particular parable from Luke 16 where Jesus talks about the importance of stewardship, the practice of stewardship. And I thought it might be helpful just really quickly to review uh, the key points, the key insights that we took away from last week's study. First of all, stewardship is the act of managing or caring for something that's been entrusted to you. It's a trust. It's, and there are things that we have been given that we have to be responsible for as managers. And then secondarily, taking that one step further, as God's stewards, we have been entrusted to care for what rightfully belongs to him. So we talked about the fact that everything in all of creation, in essence, belongs to God. He's the creator and the redeemer. And so those of us who are in Christ specifically have been bought with a price and we belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That means all that we are and all that we have essentially belongs to him. And then finally, we talked about the notion that from this parable, commendable stewardship is using God's resources to make friends, to bless others, and to honor your master. Each of these are, are implications of, of the story that Jesus told. And they, uh, th- that story illustrates the, the importance of this practice because of the influence that it has on our relationships with other people in particular and the way that it honors, honors God himself. So I want to just kind of pick up where we left off because there's a, another key insight from the parable itself that we didn't have time to get to. And I want you to look with me in just a moment uh, at verses 8 and 9. But let me begin this morning with an illustration, an illustration that I think highlights the difference or the distinction between one way of viewing resources or wealth and another way. And it, uh, to share this, I want to read for you from a fantastic little book that I've been uh, studying as a resource for this message series. It's called The Treasure Principle, and it's written by author Randy Alcorn. Some of you might recognize that name. He's written several other books, including a really great book about the nature of heaven. So if you're interested in uh, either of these subjects, I definitely commend him to you. And in the beginning of uh, the third chapter, Randy talks about a trip that he took to Egypt. 
and an experience that he had on one day that was a study in contrasts. Let me share with you what he writes just briefly. He says, the streets of Cairo were hot and dusty. Pat and Raquel Thurman took us down an alley. We drove past Arabic signs to a gate that opened to a plot of overgrown grass. It was a graveyard for American missionaries. As my family and I followed, Pat pointed to a sun-scorched tombstone that read, William Borden, 1887 to 1913. Borden was a Yale graduate and heir to great wealth. But he rejected a life of ease in order to bring the gospel to Muslims in Egypt. Refusing even to buy himself a car, Borden gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions. After only four months of zealous ministry in Egypt, he contracted spiral meningitis and died at the age of 25 years old. I dusted off the epitaph on Borden's grave. After describing his love and sacrifices for the kingdom of God and for Muslim people, the inscription ended with a phrase that I've never forgotten. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Then, the Thurmans took us straight from Borden's grave to the Egyptian National Museum. The King Tut exhibit was mind-boggling. Tutankhamun, the boy king, was only 17 when he died. He was buried with solid gold chariots and thousands of golden artifacts. His gold coffin was found within golden tombs, within golden tombs, within golden tombs. The burial site was filled with tons of gold. You see, the Egyptians believed in an afterlife, one where they could take their earthly possessions, their treasures. But all the treasures intended for King Tut's eternal enjoyment stayed right where they were until Howard Carter discovered the burial chamber in 1922. They hadn't been touched for more than a thousand years. I was struck by the contrast between these two graves. Borden's was obscure, dusty, and hidden off the back alley of a street littered with garbage. Tutankhamun's tomb glittered with unimaginable wealth. Yet, where are these two young men now? One, who lived in opulence and called himself king, is in the misery of a Christless eternity. The other, who lived a modest life on earth, in service of the one true king, is enjoying his everlasting reward in the presence of his Lord. Tut's life was tragic because of an awful truth discovered too late. He couldn't take his treasures with him. William Borden's life was triumphant. Why? Because instead of learning, uh, leaving behind his treasures... He sent them on ahead. That story, friends, connects us with the point that Jesus wants to make with this parable in Luke chapter 16. 
And so let me draw your attention again to verses 8 and 9 where Jesus' commentary on the parable ends this passage. He says, in reflecting back on the story that he's just told, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. There's the punchline of Jesus' story, and it packs quite a punch if you think about it. What Jesus is is saying really amounts to this. Trustworthy stewards of God's resources differentiate between what is temporal and what is eternal. Trustworthy stewards know the difference between what is temporal and what is eternal. You see, what Jesus said in verse 8 draws out a comparison that highlights the value of acting shrewdly with the wealth that you're responsible for. Jesus observed that the people of this world are typically more shrewd with wealth than are people of the light, those who follow him. Then he challenged his hearers to act more shrewdly, if we can use that word in a positive sense, by investing their wealth in something that pays eternal dividends. You ever thought about making an investment that pays eternal dividends? Did you catch what it was that does that for us? Jesus says it's relationships. Relationships pay eternal dividends. Jesus is basically saying here that relationships have eternal impact and importance, but wealth does not. And so you can use your wealth to influence relationships which will last into eternity. In my mind, the key key words to pay close attention to here are, are worldly wealth and eternal dwellings. Notice the difference between the adjectives used there. Worldly wealth and eternal dwellings. In short, Jesus says we should use the one that won't last to invest in the other one which will last forever. But the way that we invest in eternal dwellings is especially compelling. What what are eternal dwellings? What's the significance of that, that idea or that phrase? Jesus is saying we should invest our worldly wealth to establish and develop friendships which can potentially influence others' eternal destiny so that we might be welcomed into their eternal dwellings. Think about that. This gets us right to the heart of the parable that Jesus told. Why did the so-called unfaithful steward do what he did in the story? He did it essentially to protect himself, right? In case he were to lose his job. He knew that he had a bad reputation. He knew that his job was at risk. And so he acted shrewdly to save his own skin. 
And what he did then essentially was to cut the debts, as we talked about last week, of those who owed something to his master. He did it to merit favor from some of his master's debtors so that perhaps they would be friendly to him and welcome him into their homes should he need a new job or a new place to live. He did it to prepare for and to protect his own future. But in his case, that future was temporal, not eternal. So Jesus then is comparing what he did with what we have the opportunity to do. He's saying, like the steward, we can act similarly, shrewdly, but we can do it with an eternal impact, not just a temporal impact. Jesus is saying those who are stewards of God's resources should do likewise. We should act shrewdly by managing worldly wealth in a way that has eternal impact. To use worldly wealth by blessing others and gaining friends is, to use another of Jesus' phrases, the essence of storing up treasures in heaven. Storing up treasures in heaven. The most valuable thing we can invest our resources into, according to Jesus, is our relationships with those whose whose company we hope to enjoy in eternity. Now, let me give you something to imagine to just help you get this picture clear in your mind. I want you to think of someone right now that you hope to enjoy eternity with, but that you're not sure is going to make it there. Perhaps it's a friend or a relative or a coworker. I'm, I'm pretty sure each one of us here knows somebody who does not yet know Jesus. Now, I want you to imagine yourself meeting this person someday in heaven the kingdom of God yet to come upon Jesus' return to the earth. And imagine yourself entering their eternal home or dwelling place. Each one of us will have one, you know. We're not going to just sit around on the clouds and play harps all day. We'll have an eternal home. And we'll be able to enjoy each other and entertain each other and demonstrate hospitality and enjoy good food and fellowship together in a world where all things have been made right by the presence of Jesus as Lord of heaven and earth. So imagine yourself sitting across the table, sharing a meal with this person, and imagine hearing them reflect to you that they might not be there if it weren't for your investment in their life. Think about that. Imagine the conversation you might have with them and and the reflections that they might share with you regarding your influence upon their life. Imagine hearing them say, you know, if you hadn't invested in your friendship with me, I'm not really sure I'd be here right now. Wouldn't words like that be music to your ears? Wouldn't that touch your heart at the deepest places? And wouldn't every bit of time and treasure that you invested into that relationship 
not be absolutely worth it in that moment? That, my friends, is what Jesus is inviting us to learn and put into practice with the telling of this parable. He's saying, imagine a day when your friends invite you to their eternal dwelling places and you can enjoy their company in that place because you invested your worldly wealth in your relationship with them. You see, we have to learn that worldly wealth is worldly, but it can still be used to impact eternity. It can still be used in good and godly ways. When we understand the importance of stewardship and we recognize that everything we've received comes from the hand of God and we manage those resources well with eternity in mind, then God is honored, people are blessed, and we have a great future to look forward to. I want to share with you an illustration of somebody who's learned this principle. And it's a a person that you're probably very familiar with. He's quite popular now, has a radio show, written numerous books, uh, started his own educational program uh, called Financial Peace University. And you may have mixed feelings about uh, what he teaches or how effective it is. But but I I want you to hear this story from the mouth of a man named Dave Ramsey because he has an incredible story of how God changed his perspective regarding worldly wealth. Friends, to underscore the importance of this distinction between worldly wealth and eternal impact, let me share with you two uh, additional cross-references, other places where Scripture highlights the same thing that this parable in Luke 16 highlights for us, the same type of comparison that Jesus is making here. The first one is, is familiar to many of us. It comes from Matthew 6, which is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Verses 19 and 20, Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. From these words, we learn that a treasure in heaven is not temporal, but eternal. And therefore, a treasure in heaven is not perishable, but imperishable. It can never be taken away or lost or destroyed. It's not subject to the same threats as our worldly wealth. Then listen to this. Echoing the words of Jesus, Peter says something similar in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Peter says, You know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So silver and gold then, as valuable as they may be, 
are among the perishable things of this earth, not the imperishable. They're merely one form of worldly wealth. But as the old bumper sticker proudly proclaims, and I think Jesus would probably approve here, he who dies with the most toys still dies, right? You can't take it with you. So to put it bluntly, whatever you may do with your worldly wealth to make this life on earth more comfortable or enjoyable is not of the same eternal value as using your worldly wealth to bless others and to deepen your friendship with others, to invest in the hope of their eternity. You can spend money for your own temporal benefit or you can spend it to benefit others which has the effect of enhancing your own eternal benefit. This is what Jesus was referring to when he spoke about storing up for yourself treasures in heaven. He wasn't suggesting we shouldn't pay any attention to money at all. He was suggesting we should use our worldly wealth for what is truly of greatest value. So let me give you an example of how we seek to do this as a church and how you might seek to do it, even in your own personal stewardship. Let me tell you about a woman named Farzana. Some of you know her and are familiar with her story. She's a single mom of Muslim background origin who immigrated to the U.S. from Afghanistan just a couple of years ago with, uh, with her children. Her husband is still in Afghanistan, not able to immigrate with them, And so we learned about them from some relatives that lived next door in the apartments here to the south of our ministry center, now called Coolidge Place. She was living with them for a period of time, and uh, we found out about her plight. We decided to step in and offer some assistance in the name of Jesus. And so uh, just over two years ago, we helped her move into a new apartment where she and her kids now live. And then uh, for the Christmas of 2016, just over a year ago, We collected gifts for her family through a giving tree project. Then over the course of the last year, we've continued to help Farzana, particularly through uh, um, Matthew and Melanie Romans, who have continued relationship with her and a few others as well. Um, We helped her go through driver's ed so that she could get a driver's license. And we've helped her now, uh, just most recently, obtain a green card so that she can get employment. Now, why do I tell you this? And why do we do things like this as a church? Maybe you didn't have any idea that we actually do things like this as a local church. Why do we do it? Because we want to bless people and we want to invest in eternity. Now, there's no guarantee that she's going to come to faith in Christ, but we do this not just to bless her, to make her life more comfortable, you know, we do it in a sense out of obedience because James 1.27 says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So we bless her because it's good for her because, and, and it's good for us. But we do it particularly with the hope and prayer that in it, she's going to experience the love of God in Christ Jesus and come to faith so that someday in eternity we can sit across the table from her and reflect on the investment that we made in her future. 
We do it with the hope and prayer of having an eternal impact in her life and in the lives of her children as well. So really what is an act of compassion in this case is also at the same time an act of stewardship. Stewardship and compassion complement one another. They have complementary purposes. The same is true uh, not only you know, for, for uh, our, our ministries here at CCV, our stewardship ministry and our compassion ministry, but the same is true for each one of you personally. How you act as a good steward will be reflected in the compassion that you show to people in need who cross your path. So to practice good stewardship is to demonstrate compassion for those in need and seek to influence and invest in their eternal destiny. Not just their worldly level of comfort. Now, with that distinction in mind, let me take you uh, just to one more insight here that's significant from Jesus' words at the end of this parable in Luke 16. I want you to think with me about trust and the trust that's demonstrated in this parable and that Jesus spoke of at its conclusion. Because how we steward worldly wealth determines our trustworthiness with even greater riches. That's part of the point that Jesus is making. Look with me at verses 10 and 11 now, and look for that one key word that Jesus repeats multiple times here. Luke 16, 10 and 11. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever's dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Did you see and hear the word trust used multiple times? The parable itself that Jesus told, as I mentioned last week, repeats the word steward in multiple forms, multiple times. But Jesus' commentary after the story does the same thing now with the word trust. In fact, four times he mentions it in just two verses. Trust is of great importance in the mind of Jesus. Stewardship in Jesus' mind is all about trust. In fact, Jesus used some variation of that word multiple times here, but he references it in in other places as well. There's another parable that Jesus told, often referred to as the parable of the talents, where Jesus made a similar point. And here you want to bear in mind that talents were an ancient form of money. So, for example, in the NIV, they, they titled this parable the parable of the bags of gold, not the parable of the talents. Matthew 25, 19 to 21, listen to the insight that Jesus shares in this parable. After a long time, the master of these servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who'd received five bags of gold brought the other five, which he'd earned on investment. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. So Jesus here is 
talking again about trust and how trust is raised between the master and the steward as the steward demonstrates that they're trustworthy with the little that they have been given to begin with. And trust, you know, is a a relational dynamic, right? Established when someone is true and reliable to another person. It's foundational to any healthy, growing relationship. If your marriage lacks trust, guess what? Your marriage is in trouble. So this passage isn't just about money. Even more than that, it's about relationship, and particularly the relationship between the master and the steward. The point is that how we deal with money and other resources is an indicator of our relationship or lack of relationship with the Lord. Either he trusts us to care for and steward what belongs to him, or he doesn't. Now again, let me say that what applies here applies to us corporately in the body of Christ, and it applies individually to each person in their relationship with the Lord. So stewardship is both a corporate or a communal value that we practice together, and it's an individual practice that deepens our trust in God and his trust in us. It goes both ways. So let me, let me give you just uh, quickly here as I wind things down a humorous example of this. There's a great story. I have to grab it here. A great story told uh, by a woman named Martha Bolton of an experience she had one day at Taco Bell. I always feared it would happen someday, and there it was, in black and white. All I'd done was walk into a Taco Bell in East Tennessee and give my order to the teenager behind the counter. I wasn't trying to cause any trouble or pick a fight or be disruptive in any way. I was just trying to get a couple of tacos and a seven-layer burrito. That's all. It was lunch. Hey, kids, if you want to go ahead and find your way back to your families, thank you for coming in. Um, You can have a seat with your parents, okay? It was lunch. There was no justification for what the clerk did. He should have handed me my order and let me pay for it, and I would have been on my way. A simple transaction. But no. This guy had to take it one step further. He had to be confrontational. He had to take it upon himself to ruin my otherwise happy and peaceful day. He had to keep going until he pushed my buttons. All right, his button. The one on the cash register that printed out the words, Senior Discount. (laughs) Senior Discount? I almost dropped my tray. The nerve of that acne-faced troublemaker. Had I not been so hungry, I would have taken him on right then and there. I would have put my tray down and told him to meet me outside. Then I would have paper cut him to a pulp with my birth certificate. (laughs) I may have been over 40, but I was a long way from a senior citizen discount. So I calmed down and decided to turn the other wrinkle, I mean cheek, and, and forgive him. It was a simple oversight, after all. I went ahead and gave him the benefit of the doubt. It was the right thing to do. And besides, a 10% discount is a 10% discount. Maybe he had a migraine headache and his vision was temporarily impaired. 
Or maybe it was Taco Bell's own version of Candid Camera. That's what that little video camera above the cash register was all about, right? Or what was more likely the case, this young man's finger slipped, causing him to inadvertently hit the senior discount key instead of the coupon key. That had to have been it. Both keys were probably in the same general area. One little slip is all it would have taken. And that would have been the end of it. Except that I realized I hadn't ordered a drink and I had to go back to place another order. Diet Pepsi, please, I said, watching his every move this time. His finger hit the Diet Pepsi key. Then without even getting anywhere near the coupon key, it went straight for the one marked senior discount again. He didn't hesitate for a second. He was confident. He was beyond confident. He didn't even bother to ask me my age. If you're in doubt about something, you usually ask first, don't you? Like if you're not sure if someone's pregnant or if she's just put on a few pounds. Some people ask before throwing a baby shower. Don't you think that's a good idea? It's the same principle. But apparently this guy had no doubt. He was so confident I deserved a senior discount that he announced it as he handed the receipt to me. Here's your drink, ma'am. And with the senior discount, that comes to only 109. I didn't have a choice now. I had to stop him before he dug his, his hole even deeper. Excuse me, I said, but I'm not really a senior. I'm not entitled to a discount. In fact, I shouldn't have gotten a discount on my first order either. Then I thought to myself, I've set the record straight. That should make him think twice before giving away Taco Bell's profits to some other undeserving person. I smiled, feeling vindicated and proud of myself that I'd made the world a safer place for those of us past the 40 mark. Ah, close enough, he said. What's a couple months? (laughs) So a cute story, but one that illustrates that stewardship is about trust, right? Right? And it's in the little things that God gives us responsibility for that we have to prove that we are trustworthy. If we desire to see the Lord entrust us with bigger things, greater riches, whatever they may be. You see, this is where proponents of the prosperity gospel, I think, get it wrong. We don't sow into a church or into another person's ministry just so that God will bless us. We do it to bless others and to honor God. Is there a promised blessing in return? You bet there is, but that's not the point of the, of, 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 that we're called to focus on, right? What we hope for in return is not necessarily greater wealth for our own personal benefit, What we should hope for in return for any investment we make in the kingdom of God is greater responsibility with God's riches, whatever they may be. Because he knows, then, that we can be trusted as faithful stewards. You see the difference? The whole focus of a steward's mindset is to serve and honor his master. 
so that he will be trusted with increasing responsibility to act on the master's behalf. I want to close this morning with just a brief description of how we try to practice this as a church. Last year, some of you may realize, was our best year ever financially in the 17 years of our church's existence. We brought in, through the generosity of our members, and you can actually clap for yourselves if you like because I think this is amazing. Last year, we brought in just over $255,000 as a local church. And frankly, I believe that that money was entrusted to us, not only by you who, who gave generously, but by the Lord himself. You see, I want you to consider a few statistics from our 2017 year-end budget. Not just the bottom line of how much we brought in, but think about this. Last year, we gave away over $15,000 through our Compassion Fund and our Thanksgiving offering. Over $15,000 that came through this church and went out to people in need. In fact, the Thanksgiving offering, we collected over $8,000 that we gave to hurricane relief in Puerto Rico, particularly to two different vineyard churches that are on the ground helping people in very practical ways. And then in addition to that, $15,000, roughly 6% of our income uh, that was given toward compassion, we also gave away over $15,000 toward mission support, both regional and global mission support. So another 6%. And then we gave away about $8,000, roughly 3% of our income, to the Vineyard USA, which uses those um, resources for church planting, both here in the U.S. and around the world. There are a few administrative costs, but the Vineyard has very low overhead because it has a very thin organizational chart. And the vast majority of resources that are collected from local vineyard churches as part of our dues are used to facilitate the growth of the vineyard and church planting around the world. So you add that all up, and what it amounts to is that last year, we as a church gave away over $38,000 for ministries and people, needs and causes outside of our own local body. I think that's awesome. I'm thrilled about that. That's really uh, 15%, a little over 15% of what we brought in that we gave away to bless others. And honestly, I see those as eternal investments. That's, again, the point here of Jesus' parable, that, that we would use whatever worldly wealth we receive to invest in things that have eternal impact. And that's not to say that the other use of resources, the other 85% is spent poorly. I I trust that it's not. But I think it's really significant for us to be generous and to demonstrate our stewardship and to earn trust with the Lord by giving outside of our own body. So I share that with you because I want you to recognize that we are committed to the practice of stewardship as a church. It's something that we have to do together, but it's also something that God has called each one of us to do individually as well. And I want to close then with an opportunity 
for you to think about being a great steward. A few weeks ago, I announced uh, an opportunity, and we received a few uh, checks and response already, and I have neglected to follow up on it and share with you a little bit more about the need. And I want to do that again as we close this morning because I think this is a great opportunity for us to generously bless another church in a way that I believe will really touch them deeply. We've been talking a little bit and praying uh, uh, for our brothers and sisters at our uh, sister church epicenter of worship. And my dear friend, Sean Holland, is the pastor there. Many of you know that a few weeks ago, in fact, two Sundays ago, they moved into a new ministry center in South Lansing. They previously were located in Old Town, and they were able to, by God's provision, purchase a property on Jolly Road in South Lansing. It's an old Methodist church, very beautiful facility with uh, gorgeous stained glass windows that were made in France, and um, it's bigger than their previous place, and they're really excited. This morning was their third worship service in their new location. But meeting with Sean regularly, talking with him, praying with him, Sean has shared with me that um, they're in a crunch right now financially, that it, it was a difficult move to make, but one they felt they were, they were meant to make by faith. And they stepped out in faith uh, to pursue this property, and the Lord rewarded them by providing it for their blessing and their benefit. So what's on my heart is that in a few weeks, when we go to share a Good Friday service with them in their new location, that we would bring a gift to bless them. And I want to just invite you this morning, as a practical application of what you've heard me teach about, to pray and ask the Lord how much you should give to bless our brothers and sisters at Epicenter of Worship. I don't know how much we'll collect, but I'm hoping it's a generous gift that will really bless them significantly. I sent flowers already for their first service in their new location, and Sean was gushing over the receipt, the the blessing that those flowers, just a simple little thing. He was gushing over the way that people responded to that and how touched they were that we would think of them and pray for them and bless them. I'd like the next surprise to be a little bigger than that. So I'm inviting you to join me and to think and pray generously about what we should give so that when we come together with them on Good Friday, we can bless their socks off. Doesn't that sound fun? Let's pray.